We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back as we continue our journey in going through the book of Luke, one of my favorite gospel accounts. Um, if you are just now joining us, I would encourage you to, to kind of go back and listen to chapters 1 through chapter 6. There's a lot of really good stuff, a lot of foundational stuff that I've talked about up until now. One of them being understanding that this is still under the old covenant. Now, I understand that Luke wrote this post-Jesus, that he, he wrote this in a time in which he is, um, you know, the new covenant has already been established, but he's dating it back to Jesus's ministry in the time in which everyone was still under the old covenant. The new covenant had not yet been established. So therefore, much of what is taught in this book um, is still old covenant theology or doctrine. Jesus oftentimes clarifies what was written under the law, not necessarily establishing what is to be under the new covenant in Christ. And so some of those are the, the things that I talk about in some of the first chapters. Um, but I'm just going to get right into this one. I hope you guys are doing well. I'm excited to keep going through this book with you guys. Uh, but we've got a lot of verses to go through. Now, I'm going to kind of break this up a little bit differently. I'm not going to ex you know, expositorily go through it quite as much where I go verse by verse and really dissect everything. And a lot of this, I'm going to read the story and I'm going to kind of summarize it to get a truth from it. Um, just for time's sake of these, I really hate dividing these up into two segments, um, individual chapters, and making it into two parts. I really don't like doing that. Um, and so I'm going to try to do my best to go through here and see what it is that the Lord can, can get for us um, out of all this. So, with that said, we're going to go right into Luke chapter 7 in verse 1. And here's how he starts out. After he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this is a Gentile sinner. This is somebody who was a centurion, but he was a Gentile. He was somebody who um, was, you know, under the Roman commission. But despite all of that, he understood who Jesus was. And that is why Jesus marveled at him. It wasn't because you know, this man was good. It wasn't because he was doing things right in his life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. That's why he says, look, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. I understand my place when I'm standing next to you. I am not worthy to have you even come into my home. But he understood the position. He says, for I too am a man under authority. I have my orders from my general, just like you do. He says, but I also have people under me. I also am a man in authority. And I know what that's like. So, so he says, look, I can relate because I'm under authority, but I also have authority over so many people. And I know that if any of my soldiers needed me, if any of my soldiers you know, requested something of me in capacity with, you know, with warfare, if you will, I would do it. I would do everything I could to do it. And Jesus marveled at him because he understood who Jesus was. A man who also was under the Father's commission. A man who was also under the Father's authority. But he was a man who had authority in and above himself. So he knew that Jesus was able. He knew that Jesus was who he said he was. And that's why Jesus marveled at him. I I get a lot of times this is one of those verses that's used to say, oh, look how good that centurion was that Jesus honored his request. No, that wasn't it at all. It was despite him not being good. It was because of his faith. What was the last thing that he said? I tell you, not even in Israel, not even among my own people, not even among the Jews, have I found such faith. It was because of the man's faith in who Jesus was that he honored the request. It wasn't because he was worthy. It wasn't because he was good enough. It was because he believed in who Jesus was and in the ability that Jesus had. And so when you look at this story, you know, we can try to find all kinds of different avenues for it. But that's the bulk of it. That's the main part of this is that when you have faith. You can move mountains. When you believe in who Jesus is, first and foremost, and you believe in the power that Jesus has, nothing is impossible for us. Isn't that what he says? Is it Mark 9, 23, I think, where he says that nothing will be impossible for him who believes? We know that Philippians 4, 13 says that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, be it done according to our faith. If you have faith, it does, it's not, I mean, there's an importance in you abiding in Christ and being who you need to be because 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21, 22 talks about it where he says, if you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, then you become a, a vessel of use for the master, fit for every good work. There, there's a definite degree of you needing to do what you know needs to be done, of abiding in the word and being who God needs you to be. And obeying what he says you need to do through his word. There's absolutely a level of that. But let me tell you this. You can obey all those things and still be missing the whole picture. Because if you don't have faith in who Jesus is. And in the ability that he has been given to give to us. Through the Holy Spirit that abides within. And you'll miss it. 
And this centurion who wasn't good, who probably, you know, by all accounts wasn't even saved. He understood who Jesus was. And Jesus honored his request. And how how much more will he honor the request of those who abide in him, who live in him, who find their life and their being in him, who are children of God, who have the privilege that no one else in all of history has been able to have the privilege of doing, of calling him Abba Father. No Jew, no matter how close they were, had the privilege of calling him Abba Father. That's something for the church and for the only for the church, for those who are in Christ. And so Christian, believe, trust in him, take those steps of faith, believe in the power that Christ has, not to make your life better or let make it more luxurious or make it go more comfortable like this whole word of faith or this whole health, wealth, prosperity gospels that are being preached today that are heresy. But that if there's something that brings him glory in your life, he has the authority to do it. And you have the ability to ask for it according to his will. And so going on, verse 11, he says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with them. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, being that she was a widow, that she had no one else in her life, that her only son had passed. And now being left all alone, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Can you imagine hearing that from somebody in in such a time as that? Your only son has now passed and you're a widow. You have nobody else and your son has passed and this man comes up to you and he says, don't weep. And then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. It's sort of been like a funeral procession, okay? It was like almost like an open casket type thing. I think the word even breaks down to like a funeral couch. It's this, um, you know, table with, with um, handles on it that people are carrying through the streets or carrying right through and, and the person is just laying right on top of it. And he, come, he comes up and he touches the buyer and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now this is a similar phrase to the phrase Emmanuel that's taken back in Isaiah 7, I think. Maybe it's uh, chapter 11. I think it's, I think it's 7. Uh, I might be getting that confused with the one where he, he, when he refuses good or refuses the evil and chooses the good. About the virgin passage. But um, anyways, it's somewhere in one of those two chapters. The phrase is Emmanuel, God with us. And you have to understand what, what uh, Israel is going through in this moment. For, for about 400 years, God's voice has been silent in the nation. Malachi was written and is the last thing that God basically wrote through any prophet to his people. And he said, look, for 400 years there's going to be silence. Because it's a prophecy that has to be fulfilled. And you might not realize that, but it's a prophecy that has to be fulfilled because that's what it was in Egypt. And I talked about this previously in one of my other podcasts, but I'm not going to go at length on it. But there was about a 400-year period where there was no voice from God. The people of Israel, um, or the Jews, I should say, they, they were in captivity to Egypt. 
And God had stopped speaking to them. There was no prophet who came. There was no voice of God from on high. It was almost as if he deserted them until the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the man named Moses who came as a prophet to the people. And all of a sudden the people, after being delivered from Egypt, realized God has visited his people. God is with us. And there's a prophecy that... um, that would happen again. That after 400 years from the book of Malachi up until the time when the Deliverer or the Redeemer would come, namely Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't classify him as the Son of God. They classified him as a prophet. Because it was through him that God's voice had come back to the people, that God's presence had come to the people. They didn't realize who he really was. They just thought he was a prophet. Like Jeremiah, like Elijah. And that's why you have that encounter with Peter. Whenever we talked about it previously where it says that um, Jesus questions them and he says, Who do the people say that I am? And they answer back. They say, they say, you're a prophet. Like Jeremiah or Elijah or somebody like that. And he goes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you're right. And it's upon that proclamation of faith that I will build my church and it will be one of a sure foundation and it's no different here these people they said that God has now visited that God has visited his people Emmanuel God is with us he's now with us he is his presence is now with us through this prophet named Jesus but they were missing the boat as to who he really was because he was the Christ the son of the living God And so going on, you could even look in Hebrews 1, let me, let me turn to it real quick, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 2, in which it talks about it like this. It says that long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So he says, look, God spoke to the people through prophets in times long ago. But now he's spoken to us through his son, not just through a prophet, but through his son. And until we realize that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, he will only be just a prophet, just a good person. It's kind of like what Benjamin Franklin said about Jesus Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth, I believe is actually what is said in the article. Uh, I think he was 83 or 84 years old, um, somewhere around there, and it's close to, to dying, right? He's on his deathbed, basically. He's on the way out. And somebody asks him of Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, as far as being a good man, there was none better. Morally speaking, he was a good man, and there was none better. And if somebody wants to follow him, and that makes them a good citizen of the United States of America, a good moral person, then so be it. But what do I have to do with concerning myself with him? I'm about to die. Little did he know how much he really was going to need to concern himself with Jesus. Because when you stand before God, he's either going to say, did you know my son or did you not? And this was Benjamin Franklin, who by all accounts from my understanding was a a decently moral man, but he didn't want to concern himself with Jesus as the son of God. He just thought him to be a good man. Much like these people. They thought him to be a prophet. They didn't realize that he was the son of the living God. 
So going on, he says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, said to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Well, they, they obeyed their orders pretty, pretty good. It says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now what's interesting is that John the Baptist has already declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's already baptized him and said that I'm not worthy to even untie the strap of his sandal. He says that this one that comes after me will not baptize with water. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John already had this idea of what was going on, but I, I honestly don't know exactly why he seems to be second-guessing. Maybe he just wants confirmation. I, I don't know what the motivation is. What I do know is that John being in prison for calling out Herod for having his brother's wife, saying that that was unlawful, it was not right, even though this was just a Gentile, he still was holding him to a standard of what God was telling him through Torah. He seems to have been doubting this. And I'm not sure why. And maybe I'm wrong on that. It's just what it seems to be going. And so Jesus essentially gives him a prophecy that's found in Isaiah, I think it's 29. Um, or you can even go to Isaiah chapters 35 and just read the whole thing. I'm not going to go through it. But you can read maybe the, the whole thing um, of chapter 35. And I, I believe that it's Isaiah 29, 18. And I'm going to read it and we'll see what it says. It says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the, their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. So Jesus essentially says, look, I'm going to perform these miracles and I'm going to do what the Old Testament is prophesying that the Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to do. And I'm going to do it and now I want you to go testify that the blind receive their sight, the deaf are the ones who hear, the poor are the ones who have good news preached to them, lepers are cleansed. All these things, a lame walk, I'm doing all these things because it was prophesied of the Messiah that he would do these things. And more than that, not just physically, but spiritually. So you go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard in me, through me, and by me. To give him confirmation that I am the one who is to come. You don't have to look for another. You know, it makes me think of, there's this movement that's going on in the world today. It's called the third wave movement. And it's a supposed movement of the Holy Spirit in which they say that, you know, in Acts and the, the early accounts of the church, that was the second wave. But there's this third wave that's not really prophesied in Scripture. It's not really talked about ever. It's not brought up. This is, it's just the Spirit's moving in a new way. He moved in the first wave and then he moved in the second wave. Now he's moving in a third wave in which it manifests itself with this something called holy laughter or uncontrollable seizing and convulsing similar to something called the Kundalini spirit which is a Hindu spirit from the Eastern culture that migrated over here and somehow we labeled it under the Holy Spirit. But it's never talked about in Scripture. No third wave is talked about in the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in such ways in the people of God. 
There is no reason to look for another because the Holy Spirit manifest through Jesus Christ is who he is and he will always be. There is never going to be a third wave. There is never going to be another Christ who is going to come. Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. There will never be another. And Jesus confirms that to John saying, you are right to believe in me as the one. There will never be another. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Which, by the way, I love what he says in 23 when he says, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Essentially, he's saying, Blessed is the one who's going to heed my truth and not be offended by it. Because I don't know of anyone who's offended by love. You know, I I think about this often as the church. We have this... This sickness that seems to be plaguing the church in which we think that Christianity is just about being kind and nice and loving to people at the exclusion of truth. Well, let me just ask you, why would the church ever be hated for being humanitarian and loving towards people? Serving them, giving them the shirt off our back, feeding them, clothing them. All those various things of humanitarian efforts in which we just love mankind. Why would we ever be hated? I'll tell you why we should be hated. It's because of truth. And Jesus Jesus says, you want to be blessed of God? Then don't be offended by my truth. When I share things that are difficult, when I tell you things in my word that are difficult for you to obey, that require sacrifice of your own wants and interests, you want to be blessed? Then don't be offended by my truth. Because he is the truth. And so going on, he says, he began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury or in king's courts. He said, that's not John. That's not who you went to go see. This man was dressed in camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. He lived in the wilderness until the day of his showing forth from a young age. Until the age of 30. When he began to come forth and began to go forth and say in the name of the Lord, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ. It says you didn't go out to go see a popular man. You didn't go out to go see a man who lived in luxury and comfort. Come on, those who do those things, those are the ones who live for themselves. They live in king's courts. That's not who John was. It's not who I am. He says this. What then did you go out to see? Because he didn't match the description on any of those. He wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. He wasn't one who lived in luxury. He didn't live in king's courts. He didn't dress in splendid clothing. Much like many Christians want to do today. They want to have their best life now. And think that they're serving Christ. He says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, he was a prophet. And I'm going to tell you, he was more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Not Moses, not Abraham, not anyone who has been born prior to John. No one was greater than him. Until me. Until I was born of woman. That's why he's not worthy to untie the strap of my sandal. That's why it says that he was the greatest born of woman up until me. 
There was nobody, not even David, not even Josiah, not Solomon in all of his splendor. None of them was greater than John the Baptist until Christ. That's what he says. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now what is the kingdom of God? Well, I'm going to tell you in short, it's not a place, it's a person. The kingdom of God is the person of Jesus Christ. Because that's what we come into. That's where we sit at the right hand of the Father. We are seated with him in heavenly places, as Ephesians 2, the beginning part of it says. The kingdom of God is not a place on earth. It's not even necessarily an abode in heaven as a dwelling place. The kingdom of God is a person whose name is Jesus Christ. And when we come into Christ, I want you to catch this because this is huge. When we come into Christ and He comes into us, the kingdom of God awakens inside of us and we awaken inside of Him. And even if we are the least in this kingdom, we're greater than John the Baptist because of the one whom we are in, the one whom is in us, Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews 12 says that we, are, we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that kingdom is Jesus Christ. It's a person, not a place. That's why it's no longer a physical temple that we seek after. That's why it's no longer physical sacrifices that we search after. It's not even a physical nation that we abode, that we abide ourselves with and yoke ourselves to. It's not about Israel. It's not about, you know, a, a, a holy temple. It's not about any of that. It's about Jesus. And as he says in 1 Corinthians in several different locations, we are the temple of the living God. Because we abide in Christ. We are the temple. Of the living God. Whose spirit has been made to dwell in us. If you don't catch that. Then I don't know what else to tell you. Because you are missing so much of what the Christian life is all about. If you're off trying to yoke yourself with Israel. And you're off trying to say the Jews are God's people. If you're off out there trying to say no, no, no. We need to reclaim Israel. And we need to rebuild the temple. You're missing it. Because the temple. God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. He dwells in human hearts. We are the temple of the living God and there will not be another. There won't be a reforging of the temple in Israel that God's going to say, now I'm going to dwell there. The church is the temple. And I could go deeper into that, but for time's sake, I'm going to you know, regress from that and go back to the text. I just want you to understand that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you're greater than even John the Baptist because John was the greatest born of woman up until Christ. Because the new covenant had not yet started. I want you to just chew on that for a while. Because as great as what John the Baptist was, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Just understand, without the baptism of John under the old covenant, there was no identification with Christ in that covenant. There was no identification with Jesus in that covenant. It's just like the two robbers. I was reading about it this morning with my kids as we're finishing up the book of Matthew. Just like the two robbers. 
that were next to Jesus, one on the left, one on the right. Both of them railed at Jesus in the beginning. But there was something about the courage in which Jesus was facing his death with. There was something about the confidence that Jesus had. There was something about Jesus that one of the robbers decided to repent. He decided to say that I am unworthy to be next to you. Jesus, would you remember me on the day when you come into your kingdom? Would you remember me? And Jesus said, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise one day. You see, there there is no identification with Christ. Until you believe that he is the one that he said he was. And once you do, under that old covenant, there was then the following of baptism by John. And, he, and, and I'll even say this, even before somebody would believe that Jesus was the Christ, you would have to believe the message of John saying that the, the one he is coming is no longer delaying. He is coming. You have to have faith in the message that John declared even before Christ came onto the scene. You had to have faith that he was coming. And so when you got dunked in that water by the baptism of John, there was an identification both either with Christ or the coming one who you believed that Christ was coming. Because John had stated, either way you were believing what God was showing forth through the mouth of John and then through the mouth of Christ. As it says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist, his job was to herald the coming of Christ. And so this was an identification with Christ, whether he, he had already come or whether you believed that he was coming and you believed the message by John. It says, but the Pharisees and the Lord rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. He says, to what then shall I compare this people, this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Those are two different instruments. One is rejoicing and one is mourning. One is something that would be, you know, played in the streets and there would be jubilee and dancing that would go on. Times of joy. And then the other one was one that would be played at funerals. Times of mourning. And he says, look, we played the flute and you didn't come. We played the dirge and you didn't come. I talked about the goodness of God, you didn't come. We talked about the wrath of God, you still didn't come. You didn't repent. And here's what he goes on to say. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Who said that about him? It was the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus didn't say that about himself. I want you to understand something. It doesn't matter, oftentimes I should say, how you say truth. You could have more of a hellfire brimstone tone to it. Or you could have all about God is love. If people want to reject Jesus... As Lord of their life, it doesn't matter how you say it, they're going to reject him. Because it it doesn't matter if you come eating and drinking or if you refrain from it. It doesn't matter if you talk about the goodness of God or the severity of God. The same people are going to reject it because they love darkness more than they love light. Don't change the message to placate to the people. 
Speak the fullness of the gospel. Speak the full message of truth. Don't just talk about God being love. Talk about that God is love, but he's also wrathful. Don't talk about how God just loves the sinner. Talk about how he loves the sinner and he hates the sinner, as Psalm 5.5 talks about, where it says that he abhors every evildoer. God doesn't change. He still abhors every evildoer, just as he did back in Psalms. Don't talk about God just coming to save his people. Talk about how God's going to come one day and destroy the people who didn't believe. Paul did. Paul talked about the goodness of God. He even talked about in Romans 11. He says, note then the goodness and the severity of God. The kindness of him, but also severity of his wrath. Don't change your message to try to, to get a different outcome for the people. I'm tired of seeing churches who only want to do one side or the other. I'm tired of churches who only want to just preach that God is love. Thinking that somehow they're doing a justice to the people. To make them believe in a God who is only love and one-sided. But I've got news for you. You do more of a disservice to that person than you did a service to them. Leonard Ravenhill has a quote where he says... That the sinner's prayer has led more people to hell than any tavern. Because you give people false assurance. You give them false hope. And we're supposed to give them hope and identity of Jesus Christ and the fullness of who he is. And let me just tell you, one day he's going to come back with wrath. As it's talked about in Revelation, it's the wrath of the Lamb. He won't be coming back as some little teddy bear who wants to be your best friend loves you he's coming back with vengeance a recompense if you will even second thessalonians 1 3 through 8 talks about where it says that jesus is going to come back he's going to return and he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know christ and who do not obey the gospel of our lord and savior jesus christ don't change your message because you think that the people want to hear something different than what is written He says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclined at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, seemingly, if you go back and you look at chapter 7, verse 11 of Luke, you're going to find that the account in John chapter 12, verse 1, seems to be two different accounts. One is they're coming into Nain, as it talked about in chapter 7, verse 11. The other one is six days before the Passover. We're not there yet. In Luke, this seems to be two different accounts. Whether it was the same woman or two different women, I don't know. But the same thing really happened. And let's look at the response. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would, know, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. This man was looking down on this woman because of what she had done, not for what she was doing. And Jesus saw what she was doing in spite of what she had done. And isn't that such a comforting thing for us to know that even though despite the things that we've done in our life, even the things that you might be doing at this moment, that you've done this since this morning, 
that we can choose to come to Christ in repentance and in sorrow over those things and choose to treat Him as He is worthy to be treated. And He would say, I can forgive you, my child. That's why 1 John 1, nine is such a comforting passage when He says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As this woman was seeking to cleanse the feet of Jesus, He was cleansing her from her past sins. And that's a beautiful thing. And I want, to, I want you to understand something. He wasn't cleansing her of her future sins. He was forgiving her of her past sins. Same way that when we come to Christ in salvation, He cleanses us from our past sins, not our present and future sins. He can cleanse those if we choose to repent. But when you come to Christ, don't believe this heresy that's out there. And heresy is a strong word. A lot of people think that you call somebody a heretic, that you're like condemning them to death and that they deserve hell. And that's not what heresy is. Just go look up the definition. Heresy is essentially anything that is taught that's not true. That's all it is. So if you're a heretic, that simply means, I'm not saying you're a false teacher in the sense that you belong to the devil and that you aren't really saved. I'm just simply stating you're saying things that aren't true according to the text. So this whole, you're forgiven of past, present, future sins when you come to Christ, that everything's wiped away and you're forgiven. And when God looks at you, all he sees is the blood of Jesus. He doesn't see, that's heresy. You were forgiven of your past sins. You were wiped away. Those past sins were wiped away in his divine forbearance, as Romans 3 says. He looked over sins that were committed previously. Your past sins were wiped away. But you will be accountable for your present and future sins if you are not repentant of them. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says everybody in the church, whether you are a Christian or not, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for anything you've done in your body, whether good or evil. You'll give an account. Let me just tell you. If when God forgives, he wipes away the judgment of that, how are you going to give an account for something if it's already been forgiven? The reality is, is it hasn't been. The only thing that was forgiven was your past sins, much like this woman. Her past sins, he says, I'm wiping them away. I'm I'm going to forgive every one of them because I see that you're repentant now. And he gives him this parable and he says, A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii. A denarii denarii was a day's wage. So if that was $100, you're looking at about $50,000 right here. 500 denarii. One denarii equates to about $100. Then you're looking at about $50,000 of debt. And he says, and the other, 50. So, same way, you look at 50 times 100, and you're looking at, what, 5,000? Yeah, 50,000 and 5,000. One's quite a bit more manageable than the other. If, you're lo- if I'm looking at that, I could probably scrounge up five grand to go, I'm sell some things, and I could scrounge up five grand. Even as a, as a man who has 10 kids, you know, and having to provide for them, I only work about 20 to 25 hours a week because we set our life up to be simple so I'm not bogged down and having all my time taken up with having to work 50 hours a week and not be able to be involved in ministry and in my kids' lives and ministering to people in the church and ministering to unbelievers. It's how we've chosen to set our life up so we live simply. 
But I could manage 5,000. 50,000, not so much. We're talking about having to sell our home. And even then, I don't know if I'd have enough. Because we live simply. We don't live in an extravagant home. Even though we have 10 kids. They all share a room. And so he says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now this was a past accruance that they had accrued to their account. That they couldn't pay. He's not talking about some future debt that they had. He's talking about a past debt that they had that they could not pay. There's nothing that they could do to work off this debt. This is the gospel in short. There was nothing that you could do that could earn your salvation. Nothing you could do to work your way to God to do enough to get there on your own merit. There's nothing you could do. And there's nothing these two men could do to pay off their debt. And he says, now which of them will love him more? When both of the debts were canceled, which one will love him more moving forward? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, the level in which we love the Lord is reflected by how much we realize we've been forgiven of our past sins. How do you fit in this equation? Do you struggle to love because you don't really feel like you're, you've been forgiven of a whole lot? You've been morally pretty good your whole life. You haven't really done a whole lot like other people. Well, oftentimes our love is reflective by how much we realize the depravity of our own soul. And what does Jesus say here? He says that because of what you did in wiping my feet, you got saved. Is it because of how much you loved me that you got saved? No, those were reflections of your faith in who I am. You realized that I was worthy. You realized that I was King of kings and Lord of lords. You realized that I was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as a result, you loved me well. Because you realized how insufficient you were in and of yourself to be worthy of God. And so you love well. And in the same way, if we don't realize that we are nothing, that while we were worth saving in God's eyes, we are unworthy servants who did not deserve anything that God gave to us through Christ. And when we view things like that, then we can begin to love our enemies. We can begin to love our husbands or our wives who don't actually act the way that they're supposed to. We can begin to love them because we realize the level of our own depravity and sin. You see, when we begin to think that we are okay, that we're good, that we have, we have some good stuff in us, 
Then we start to actually criticize our husbands and our wives for not being good. I was talking about it with the kids this morning. In the, the hypocrisy in the gospel that's proclaimed in many ways. And, and we were talking about how it says that when Jesus stood before Pilate and even when he went to the cross, it says never once did he ever seek to defend himself. And, and listen to me on this because this is important. Never once did he seek to defend himself, whether in speech or in retaliation and deed. People said false things about him. He never once opened his mouth to defend himself. Because he knew he had a defender. And Jesus being our example, it, it strikes me as odd of how many people today are so quick to try to defend themselves. You see, we go in to church and we worship God. For even though while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But if somebody comes in with a gun, I know of churches even today, who they will appoint people to carry guns. In the church service, so that if somebody comes in there shooting up, they'll shoot them and take them out. Do you understand the hypocrisy that's in that? We are worshiping God for not giving us what we deserve. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we worship Him, singing these words and song. And then a sinner comes in and we're going to give Him what He deserves in our own estimation. In the same way, a person who doesn't realize how much they've been forgiven, he'll be the same type of person that's going to pull the trigger. He'll be the same type of person who's going to defend himself or even defend others. But Romans 12 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That word for avenge, it actually means to defend yourself from someone or to defend others from someone. Go look it up. What happened to Peter when he tried to defend Jesus? He got rebuked for it. What, what was our example in Christ who never tried to defend himself? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Because I can't even tell you how much hypocrisy I see in the church today. I'm not talking about stumbling. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm talking about flat out hypocrisy of people who don't get it. They don't even understand the gospel in which they say they worship Christ for. Because they live out a contrary gospel intentionally. That's hypocrisy. I'm not talking about the stumbling. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm talking about the hypocrisy that's there. There are so many contradictions in the American church of how we live out Christianity in our own lives as opposed to what we say we worship on Sundays. And this is no different. He says, you're a hypocrite, Simon. Because you say that you're better than this woman because you said that if I would have known who she was as a sinner, I never would have let her even touch me, even my feet. And he says, and yet she's loving me better than what you do. Because you don't realize the depravity of your own soul. Because you somewhere deep down think that you're just good enough. And that you don't really need me. That's what happened to the church in Laodicea. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Because it's detestable to me. For you to think that you can do a few good things. 
here and there and still live your life kind of teetering between the world and heaven and just kind of borderline it. It's detestable to me to claim my name and live like that. He says, you've forgotten that without me, you've forgotten just how wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked you really are. And this is exactly what he's trying to say here. Now you can go into a similar account in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, and you could even say that Jesus is the only one who has the authority to forgive sin. As I've heard some people say that, you know, to say otherwise, it's heresy. Even in the text in Luke and in Matthew, we talked about that was one of the things the Pharisees said, that you make yourself equal to God because only God can forgive sins. Well, in John 20, 23, the first thing that Jesus does after he resurrects, he comes to his disciples and he breathes on them and says, receives the Holy Spirit. And then he says, anyone in whom you forgive their sin, it will be forgiven. And if you choose to withhold their sin or their forgiveness, it'll be withheld. Jesus just gave them the authority. Does that make the apostles God? Of course not. It just means we have the same authority that Christ had given him by God. And that might not make a whole lot of sense to you as to why I bring that up. And I would just encourage you to just study. You want to know more about who Christ is? Don't just go by what you've always been told. Study the word. Study the word to show yourself approved. A workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so this is a passage, I think, that just kind of puts us in our place and reminds us who we really are in comparison to Jesus. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And while we might be in him and he in us and God's given us his spirit... And we might have authority to walk out this life in Him. We must never forget that apart from Him, we are nothing. And to the level that we realize our nothingness apart from Him is a level that we're willing to forgive others. A level we're willing to love others. Because as soon as we forget that we are nothing, then we forget that He is everything. Y'all be blessed.